Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. I want to stay and stay and never go. Those are the opening lines of a powerful new book by Will Ashen called The Passengers. Well, is it really by Will Ashen? The Passengers comprises 180 sections, each of which represents a different voice. Over a two and a half year period, Will collected a range of people talking about their lives. They're only linked to one another, a connection to the British Isles. Attentive listeners will remember that Monocle on Culture guest John Mitchinson recommended the passengers on a recent episode of the show, and we couldn't help but want to take a deeper look into the stories, secrets and musings that make up the anonymous lives at the heart of Will Ashen's book. The Northern Irish Catholic who decided to join the police in the wake of the Troubles, the recently sober addict reflecting on getting clean, or the artist who swallows a nail and starts to become emotionally attached to the item. In order to hear those stories, he collected interviews but also sent letters to random addresses or asked people to record themselves talking. The outcome of this intrepid story harvesting is a collective narrative of what it feels like to be alive in a particular time and place. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio now by that author, Will Ashen. Aren't we lucky to have Will Ashen in the studio? Lovely to have you. (laughs) So lucky. (laughs) So lucky. A man speaking in a thousand voices, none of them his own. Exactly. Will, congratulations on what is a fantastic, a fantastic book. Such a wonderful idea. Thank you so much. And the testimony of people literally flies off the page. It's such a wonderful symphony of voices, of opinions, of little windows into the larger world and people's small worlds as well. So I'm going to have to ask you the most obvious question. Is at what point did it strike you as an undertaking, as a, as a sort of literary undertaking to, to canvas the opinion of, of hundreds of people in yeah, this country? It's a really good question. You probably need to know two things about me. One is that I used to write fiction and the other is that mm. I used to run a record label, a hip-hop label called Big Dada. Which we doff our cap to. Ah, thank you very Both much. Both of those endeavours. Uh, excellent yeah. stuff. I guess when I started writing non-fiction, the first book I wrote was about Epping Forest, Strange Labyrinth. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really know, other than living near Epping Forest, I didn't really know anything about it or its history or anything about the background. And I and I quickly decided that basically what I was doing as a non-fiction writer, I can't speak for people with, with bigger brains than me, but what I was really doing, in effect, was reading a lot of books, finding quotes from other people, speaking to people, and then taking quotes from them, and then collaging those bits of them speaking together and then putting comic incidents with me falling out of trees in between them just to just to break it up a bit. Um, and that really appealed to me because because of my background in hip-hop. I think of hip-hop as a collaging form of music. And where I'd always kept my fiction writing and my, I guess, my day job quite separate, it suddenly seemed like quite an interesting way to bring those two currents in my life a bit closer together. So after I finished Strange Labyrinth, I wrote Chamber Music, which is about Wu-Tang, and particularly about their first album, which came out in 1993, which for me is kind of the high point of that golden age of sampling in hip-hop before everyone started getting sued uh, (laughs) and couldn't afford to do it anymore. And as I was doing that book, the idea occurred to me that I had this sort of irritating voice in the back of my head saying, well, could you do it without the irritating bits of you falling out of trees? I mean, is it possible to write a book without me falling out of a tree, in effect? The pratfall moment. Exactly, that... yeah. I love a good pratfall. <laughs> we love Strange Labyrinth. Don't go changing, Will. Although, you know, we, we, yeah. we're congratulating you on the passengers. I mean, talking about your sometime former job at Big Dada, mm. 
Max Liu, who gave your book a lovely review in the FT a couple of weeks ago, mentioned this and kind of called back to that and sort of said, you know, the remixing, sampling thing that you've been so au fait with working in music kind of came into this and I was like oh that's an interesting way of putting it and of course you're making that association immediately it's yeah. so interesting as I say I think when I was when I was running the label I mean people think running a record label is really glamorous but actually I sat in a really small room all day shouting at people on the telephone that was basically <laughs> my my daily life you and your you, gold telephone you spe- <laughs> yeah. oh it was so gold yeah in a room sort of scattered <laughs> with crap because of my uh, inability to tidy up I sat there and yeah most of your time you're going where's where's the test pressing where's this what's going on with that and so fiction writing for me always felt like kind of an escape from that uh, so I kept the two things very kind of siloed. So, yeah, it was nice to find a way. I mean, you know, in a way, it's just a metaphor. I mean, you could describe the process in (laughs) any one of a hundred different ways. But for me, it was a starting point. Yeah, it was a way into it. And this is exactly what it is. Describing the process in a hundred different ways is is kind of very central to the book. It's everyone sort of muddling through, I suppose, everyone defining themselves. We should say, you know, this is a sort of, it's in the vein of, of a social history, isn't it? That's kind of what it is. There's writing running like a stick of rock, like there is through Britain, contemporary Britain. You've kind of... You're providing some of that writing with this. I get a bit nervous about calling it a social history because there are actual social historians who'll be sitting at home going, bloody hell, you can't call this social history? Because Not least because, I mean, there's a very famous story about Studs Terkel, who is an American oral historian, popular oral historian, I guess, and the oral historians got very angry with him because he'd edit and move things in the transcript. He wouldn't present the transcript exactly as it was recorded mm. and he'd take out his questions and he'd turn it into a monologue all of the things that i do in this book yeah i mean although they seem very simple they've all been shaped and thought about quite carefully to try and and in a sense what i, I think the idea was to try and find the kind of core of what people spoke to me about i think one of the key ones mm. was quite early on yeah um, give us a, I, give I, us I, could, a, I could read it to a you little essence. yeah it's a yeah. tiny tiny one it's number five in the book and i really love this one i don't know why it always sort of pops like a little little bomb in the back of my head and I'm not quite sure why. So number five. We stopped next to these fir trees and my daughter said, what's that noise? What's going on? We're looking around for this strange buzzing sound for this noise. And eventually we looked up and the trees were covered, literally covered in bees. It's lovely. It's so nice. (laughs) It's poetic. I walked out of my house the other day, fresh from reading this, and there was a swarm of bees in the tree, Ah. looked up, and there it was. I was like, this is deeply strange. The book is following me. It's the Faber press office. They're (laughs) so brilliant. They're so inventive (laughs) with what they'll do to get get the word out. They're starting a buzz all over. Ah, clever there. They'll edit that out. That was terrible, and I'm sorry. (laughs) It's so lovely. And this is, you read out that lovely family holiday with the swarm of bees up in the tree. And it's these magic moments that kind of have the ring the things that are very kind of in the on the face of it ordinary have the ring of poetry and some of the things that sound that are encompassing god life death the universe and everything can sometimes sound because we've heard some of those similar things before maybe obviously never never defined in exactly the way that with the people that you've spoken to in mm. your book they can weirdly ring 
it's more in the, on the banal side of things. That's the, I mean, what I mean is, I don't, and I don't mean that any any injustice to your brilliant interlocutors, but it is it is that thing where the, the smallest throwaway comment can seem just wonderfully profound. I guess it depends what mood you're in. It's like music; you can you can read it at one point yeah. and it can mean one thing, other times and the other thing. I'd like to get into a bit of the process, and I don't want to yeah, shine. I don't want to. I don't want to let too much daylight in upon the magic of the process. I'm happy to let in as much as you want. I'm not. I'm not too precious about. <laughs> Cranking process. open the sunroof. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Readers will know they'll pick up your your book in the table in the bookshop that welcomes you in because it looks beautiful. It's such a wonderful idea, and they'll go, "Well, how did he do this?" Yeah. And I suppose you sent some of it was you contacted people at random online, presumably. Do you yeah. stick up postcards in post offices? What was the what was the gamut of the ways in which right. you communicated? So the starting point for all of that was that while I was still thinking about this idea, I was also thinking, "But how will I get enough possible bits of?" transcript or text to actually make a collage out of and I went to with my daughter to see Faces Places the film that Agnes Varda uh, yeah, did Agnes with Vada. JR yeah. and she was speaking afterwards with him it was September 2018 I guess a year or so before she died and at the end she said what I use as the quote at the front of the book chance has been my best assistant which I had no idea she if you look it up online she says it she said it practically every time she spoke about anything but to me it was like this revelation <laughs> I didn't know it was a Varda common outpouring yeah because obviously she she did that thing her filmmaking was very much she didn't have lots of money. She was a single mum. So she yeah. shot a lot of her films on her street, didn't yeah. she? These documentaries. Absolutely. So it really was, yeah. it was, in a similar way, yeah, yeah. it was this, it was, it was, what was testimonial. There. Yeah. It was what people were doing and saying. Yeah. Absolutely. And so at that point, I decided to go hitchhiking. That was, that was where I started. And what I like about the idea of hitchhiking to get interviews is that the interviewee chooses you rather than you choosing the interviewee. I'm not saying, oh, I want that particular person. I'm just standing there with my thumb out looking like a clown until someone stops. A particular type of person in a particular type of car. Yeah, uh, any any person. He got got wet, dear listener. (laughs) Mainly any person who will actually stop is the kind of person that you want. So I started with those and I probably did 40 or so interviews like that. Maybe maybe a bit more. Not quite. I can't actually quite remember. But obviously, one of the things you realise very quickly is that when you say, oh, I'll allow chance to make these decisions, is that you don't always think about the assumptions and the rules and the parameters you're setting for chance to operate within. Mm. And obviously, when you go hitchhiking, you only get picked up by men. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a basic rule. I think there was one single woman who picked me up the whole time I was hitching. So suddenly you've got so you've 40 halved, halved interviews the, yeah. by men and you've <laughs> yeah. got no interviews from women. And I guess probably one of the few hard and fast rules I set for this book was that roughly half, well, half each would be men and women. So then I had to start thinking about other ways. And I did various other things, working on some smaller projects that kind of then tied into this. But then obviously lockdown came along, the pandemic came along, and suddenly I couldn't go out hitchhiking even if I wanted to. And I had to start thinking of other ways to, to reach people. So I wrote letters and sent them to random addresses that I generated. Did you just sort of go through the phone book or go no, on I, to Google I a, Maps or something? Uh, there's a, I managed to get a list of all the postcodes. I think it's on Wikipedia. And right. then I counted up how many there were, just the first bit, you know, like IG or E yeah. or whatever. So then I'd get that. And then you'd look and see how many numbers there were for that. So IG, there might be 
12 postcode regions mm-hmm. within that so then you do another round and so and build it up like that it was really really complicated and I, I always can't... wonder when I'm sitting in my office at home I always <laughs> wonder what other people are doing in their offices at home <laughs> chewing uh, the end of a pencil yeah, and thinking I, of all the yes, yeah I like working it. my way through my charts going oh my god uh, there's, there's a whiff of murder wall yeah. about this but, right yeah exactly yeah no it's definitely slightly um, yeah there's more murder wall to come don't worry okay. and so I sent out some letters and I got some responses like that I tried texting random phone numbers that didn't go so well i think people when people get a random text from someone they've never heard of mine, well. you think <laughs> you think scam don't you yeah. you think this person is trying to steal all my money somehow this is going to end yeah. badly so i didn't get any responses from that i must admit i did something where i had a map of britain and i drew a line from where i now live in northeast london through leicester basically where i grew up mm. and that carried on up through the north of England and across the edge of Cumbria and Dumfries and Galloway and up into the Western Isles. And then I drew another line at a right angle to that and so on, sort of bisecting the angles. And then I looked for people to speak to along those lines. Often, actually what I found out was often I looked on the coast because there's something quite satisfying about where a line cuts yeah. the coast. Yeah, yeah. And then I'd find a place that was on that and I would Google that and try and find an organisation or something that I could email and say, would you be, would anyone be interested in doing an interview? So there were all these kind of things. And then beyond that, the other side of it was a lot of the interviews I did, I had 12 questions, kind of questions. Mm. Often people would say, is that it? Is that the question? When I read the question out and I'd ask them to pick a number from one to 12 and that would be what we'd talk about for 20 minutes or so. And they were things like, what did it look like? Was one of the questions. And another one was, how does it feel? Things like that. Yeah. Things that actually are fairly nonsensical. There's a sort of, it's very much an art project, that notion of... Thing, <laughs> isn't an it? art project. Well, no, but it's like, <laughs> you're an artist, war. but you're an artist <laughs> making it, asking a very open-ended question just to see what kind of, what opens the yeah. floodgates for people. Because people yes. who aren't used to being interviewed aren't used to be uh, perhaps op- answering open-ended questions. Or It's an yeah. interesting thing. I mean, it how was... did people engage with the notion, the whole notion of you doing this thing? Did you say, I'm hoping this will end up as a book? Yeah. Did people engage with that or did they like it when it was you were just a guy who's interested in... I'm doing a big project and it's about this. Did people think it was about the kind of weft and sort yeah, of waft of Brexit was... in the state of the nation? Did people read lots of different things? People did it? read different things yeah. into it, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, you mentioned the questions. Part of my problem is that I'm a terrible interviewer. I, I, I find it really uncomfortable. <laughs> try, try being me. <laughs> You're doing very well. I find it really uncomfortable when people talk to me about things that are obviously painful for them. Mm. So my tendency is just to change the subject, which is obviously terrible. Just get into the meat of it. Or I noticed as I transcribe these endless interviews, I have another tendency, which is if someone pauses in a sentence, I'll leap in and say the word that I think they're looking for, and then it ruins the whole sentence because you they never they then finish said it. it. Yeah. yeah. So um. So there were various. And there are a few square bracketed words in the book, which is basically when I probably when I blundered in. So part of the point of those open ended questions was actually to stop me from babbling. But the lovely thing about it was, is that I think what those open ended questions, I mean, quite often people would say, I, I just don't know what to say to that. There'd yeah. be a moment of stunned silence. And, and then they think for sometimes only 30 seconds, sometimes a minute or so, and suddenly something would click. And it'd usually be something that was... I guess, quite paramount in their minds anyway at that time, and they'd start talking. Then things were rolling. I mean, some of them are so beautifully poetic. They start off so strong as well. Like, I'm on page 16. This is, this is entries number 16 and 17. 
I mean, these sound like, if you're going to creative writing school, these sound like, they give me a sentence and finish the rest of the short story. I think I've had my hair cut professionally once in about 30 years. The first thing I'd do on leaving the hairdressers, which was terrible, I'd rub my head on the doormat as vigorously as I could. Part of the reasoning was so that I wouldn't be taken back because it would be too embarrassing. Relating to all of this, I have probably only washed my hair under 10 times since I was 18, which I attribute to not going bald. Actually, I think there might be something in that. I don't know if it's suggested by other people. I'm such an anomaly in the breadth of my family, it could be one of the reasons in terms of hair growth. If a bird shat in my hair, I'd probably wash it. Actually, I wouldn't. You don't need to. It just rinse out. <laughs> it's amazing. It's ridiculous, and it, but it's sort of beautiful. It is a beautiful mm. cross section of of. I know where you, I can imagine sort of where you were on that day and what that was like, <laughs> and deciding on that was the thing that you were going to take away from that. And, yeah. And just to give listeners an illustration, Overly from that entry seventeen is a very simple, a very a very short and sweet treatise from someone describing the beauty of their bike yeah bicycle would you like to read that one now let's have it let's have it from you 17 it was a tomasini an italian frame but it had been painted up in this midlands bike shop it's hard to describe the paintwork was shiny that kind of oil on water effect so it's cream but with a kind of oily water finish and it had really straight tubes lovely really thin i think it's really aesthetically pleasing it's like the drawing that a child does of a bicycle what I got really into as well were the lug works. That's where bits of the tubing joined together. Back in the day, they would have these little separate pieces, lugs, and they started becoming really decorative. Tomasini has a little T cut out in the bottom bracket. It's the care. You look at it, and you look at all the different things that have gone into it, and it's something that someone made with their hands and did it with a lot of skill. It's an object made with love. It's mm. so lovely. Yeah. And some of these things feel um, so intimate. There's an intimacy to asking people these open-ended questions. In a way, you're getting people to tell you a secret. It might yeah. not be a dark-hearted secret mm. from childhood, but it's something they've maybe not told anyone yeah, or expressed yeah. in a way that they would express mm. it to someone doing this book. Did you find it a moving process and a kind of intimate process to do this? I did find it really moving, yeah, mm. quite often. As you say, in some strange way, it didn't really relate necessarily to how intimate or personal what they told me was. The secrets, incidentally, I weren't interviews. They were done by the person either using a widget on my website or recording like a voice on their phone and sent to me as a voice memo. Right. So, And that's it's quite nice as well. I think you get these different kind of slightly different textures to the different pieces. I mean, there's such a lovely... I guess tone to it and there's such a lovely rhythm to how you edited it together thank you I'd love to ask you about that you've got a lovely quote from sort of friend of the show Max Porter in the front <laughs> as well who knows a bit or two about the rhythm of prose yeah successful prose poetic prose and he obviously picked up on the lovely lovely rhythm of the tones of voice the way the entries are stacked up yeah. in a sort of symphonic musical kind of way it seems to me as well obviously you know great love of music yeah. has, gone, has run through your life as well did that come into play with the, the rhythm of it yeah absolutely i mean it was probably the hardest part of the book was not getting the pieces but figuring out how to put them together because 
And I made the mistake of figuring out mathematically how many variations there are of 180 sections, which is a number so big that I nearly, that I nearly cried when I saw it. It actually crashed my phone the first time I tried to put it on. It's, for anyone who's interested, it's 180 factorial, which is 180 times 179 times 178, wow. all the way down. I think it's like 44 digits. It has, right. I think, 14 These are the hanging zeros. This is the combinations, of combinations of the order that you could have the stories in. Yeah. yeah. At that point, you just think, well, this is impossible. I may as well. I was reading a book about John Cage at the time, and I started oh, to think, oh, I should just do them randomly. I'll just. Well, he he loved the 444 order. as much as the yeah. next man. <laughs> so I did think I would just, yeah. So I thought about that, and then there was something else in that book where they were talking about a piece that John Cage wrote that was durational. And I suddenly thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe I could think about them in terms of, in terms of their lengths. So originally the idea I had was that they would start with the smallest and they would just grow to the biggest. And then I thought, I don't know, I I was fiddling around with that in my head for a few weeks. And then I came up with this idea that each section, I think the rule I ended up with was each section is bigger than the one before until you reach the biggest section. And after that, each one is smaller than the one before. So it's got sort of like sound wave. Yeah. Thing. Where it get, yeah. yeah or, or, or tidal almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like an accordion or something yeah. somehow being played. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. It's an accordion. I mean, music's been a huge part of my life and really important to me. And I, and I, I hope that that fed in in some ways. And I actually think I, I felt for a long time that the most important thing with writing is actually rhythm. And I think it's uh, people tend to think of that in terms of poetry, but I actually think all writing and there's rhythm of the sentence then there's the rhythm of how sections relate together and there's the rhythm of how chapters and uh, fit together and I think for me if you get the rhythm of a book right <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a dumb thing to say but to some extent it doesn't matter what's in it if the rhythm yeah. works then the book works well, it's believable there's something believable about yeah. a certain cadence of a sentence yeah. and all the rest of it and, yeah. and it's a musical thing it's certainly a hip-hop thing it's yeah. like it's got that but it's a life thing as well yeah. I, mean, I mean we live to the rhythm of our heartbeats you know there's mm. there's a there's a oh god i'm gonna forget his name now there's a fantastic documentary about a, a jazz drummer whose name has now escaped me and his whole thing is about the heartbeat as as the basis of, of rhythm and how that's constantly, how actually there's no regular meter to the heartbeat. It's constant. You're, the, it has a rhythm, but that rhythm is constantly moving slightly. And so his line is that that that's how music should be. It should never just be bam, 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 fall yeah, to the yeah. floor. It's always it's about how you shift to and from off off that beat is is what makes music live in a sense and breathe. We talked about asking people certain types of questions and what they read into those questions. Yeah. You know, doing a project that defines the nation. I know you probably you wouldn't put it in terms as large as that, I'm sure. I don't know. But actually, when you were pitching this to Faber, were you saying, well, this is a, a cross section of the country now or this, depending upon what I get? Because you could do something amazing around dying dialect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you keep in, to a certain extent, some of Gunners rather than going tos mm. and me rather than my. And there is a le- there's the colloquialism particular to that person. Mm. I can't pick where they live in the British Isles, which is a nice thing. You haven't gone, you know, you haven't yeah. gone Irving Welsh, Glaswegian for Glasgow, etc. Yeah. But there is, a, as I say, there's everyone, everyone owns their own tone of voice very much in that. Was there a, a larger kind of engine or was there a larger sort yeah, of drum beat is, in the back of your head for the book? There was a larger engine and it's actually nothing to do with the British Isles at all. The British Isles is, <laughs> just, so is, happens. just happens to be where I am yeah. and I think it's a neat way to talk about the book. But for me, really, what I wanted to do, what I decided I was doing really was talking to people about what it feels like to be alive 
at a particular place in time, which is here and now. So that is the British Isles around yeah. 2020. So, um, but I don't see it as a exploration of Britishness. I see mm. it as an exploration of being alive, really. I yeah. guess, yeah. And in and in that sense. Yeah, it's 180 people. It's it's not enough for the British Isles, but I think it's enough for life. <laughs> Doesn't make <laughs> That'll any do. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. One of the ones that I also love was number 95. I've bookmarked it as Speedway. Ooh, yeah, I do. I like used to go one. to Speedway quite a bit when I was younger. I used to go and see Newcastle Diamonds. The smell. When I went, the world champion was a guy called Ivan Major. I can't remember where he was from. He wasn't British or not like that. But he had a gold-plated motorbike. It was on show, and I remember going to see that and thinking, wow, that's something else. It goes on. In terms of capturing someone's tone of voice and the specificity of an experience, and there's that lovely second line, the smell, exclamation mark. It's so beautifully done. Something like that. Your man here is, uh, is a Speedway enthusiast. And then he, he's a most, he works for a tyre company, doesn't he? Yeah. He's a mechanic yeah, yeah, and he yeah. works for tyre. I mean, I feel like that's so straight from the horse's mouth. I can't imagine you edited much and redacted much yeah. from that. I mean, obviously, certain ones, some you might have spoken to someone for two hours and it yeah. ends up as maybe even your opening and ending Which is true. quotes. Well, I, mean, I want to one, stay and never go. That one was actually a, a lift. That was someone who picked me up. And the first thing he said to me was, I've never picked up a hitchhiker before. You're not going to kill me, are you? <laughs> you left that out <laughs> yeah and and actually i was in the car with him for quite a while so it is edited down but um yeah. so there's endless decisions taken but the idea is you don't want it to feel like that no so in a sense i'm really glad that you thought it couldn't possibly have been edited because that makes me feel like i did my job quite well in that case yeah but when you don't know who it is or what it is you read it forces a certain amount of care and the result of that is that you then get more from it Sometimes the cattle stand very close to the fence and you can hear them. Is it called ruminating? You can hear them chewing, chewing the cud, and it's really bloody loud. I hadn't realised that they actually kind of vomit up or bring up the grass they've already eaten and then re-chew it. It's a sound that I don't think I've ever heard in my whole life. But it's amazing seeing animals that big just hanging out and doing a lot of chewing. Ruminating. It's to do with digesting. Digesting ideas, digesting and reconstituting ideas. And I really love to know when they think, thought this might be going into a book, yeah. whether they sort of changed their delivery, they changed the. There was this, you know, someone that was maybe started off a little bit timidly, perhaps, or vice versa kind of possessed some bravado or do you know what I mean Some, suddenly someone took on the role of a poet if they knew that this was going to be written down if they knew that they were going to be yeah it's l- a so it was really going to end up interesting in a book, question I and I don't obviously know the answer because yeah. that was the situation we were in and I think it's an interesting question in that you know this book is is being sold as a work of non-fiction and it is a work of non-fiction in that I interviewed these people and this is what they said to me but they could all be making it up for all I know. I've got no... And I never checked with anyone. I, I took everyone at face value. Mm. I, t- I took them at face value. Mm. They spoke to me about what they wanted to speak to me about. And if they wanted to make up a load of stuff and tell me it, I would accept that. Imagine if this is a New Yorker article. The fact checkers would be I on know. you like... <laughs> they would go insane. Oh, my God. Oh, They'd be out for years. Well, you, goes my they never my... published it in his lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> or anyone else's. Or anyone yeah, else's. So there we are. But so, there's um, this lovely strength to that. That's you've you've asked people to tell you a truth. Yeah, and if they choose not to, that's their lookout, really. I mean, I don't 
I, I actually don't mind. I don't think it makes any no, difference, it make to, any difference to, to, me. to me or to the book. And actually, in some ways, I think that's that. Once again, I like those little, those slight tensions where you're not sure quite what you're getting. And mm. I think that's that goes back to the same thing we're talking about. We were talking about before is if you is that tiny bit of uncertainty is what makes reading or consuming any other kind of culture exciting. It's when you're not quite sure what it is that you're getting that it springs to life and, yeah. is, and catches your imagination in some way. I loved it so much. I think it's such a wonderful book to read through, to dip into, to you could kind of hit shuffle and read it in any way it's so like despite the fact you've put it together as we said with this beautiful symphonic musical kind of cadence to it as well do you know what i mean i think it rewards the random flick as well because it's so so lovely you never know whether you're going to get someone something bombastic something something very small and quiet it's such a lovely thing thank you we should read one more what's one of your favorites will that you can oh God. read to play us out oh no the, the the pressure no pressure i must admit i'm not a book person newspapers i sit and read newspapers but i've never been a book person i will sit and look at a map book which people think is quite sad but that's just the nature of the job i suppose I like to look at my maps, especially if I'm going to London. I know my way around London very well, I would say, as a coach driver, but I always like to know where I'm going. So if I was going London at the weekend, when I'm down here at the airport for an hour waiting for a plane to come in, I'll get my map out. I'll look, do my homework, where I'm going to drop off, where I'm going to park and all stuff like that. As a coach driver, you're meant to be a professional driver, so I like to do it. Be professional, be prepared. I've been in the industry for 37 years and I'm still going new places. Last week I had a school party to Crocodile World and I've never been there in my life. I take a wide variety of people. One day I could be taking a lot of older people down near Yarmouth for the bowling for a five day and then the following week I could be taking a load of 18 year olds to an airport or people on a hen do or stag do. I like to think I adapt to the group if you know what I mean. Because at the end of the day most people are going for leisure. I like to try and make their trips as enjoyable as possible. They've chosen to go there as a hobby or a pastime or for fun. Whether it be a church group or a load of lads going on a stag do for a day, they're all going to have a day out and it's their leisure time and I try to make it as enjoyable as I can. It's quite interesting when you're driving a coach because you can sit in the driver's seat and you can keep your ears open and you can hear people behind talking. And you're sort of earwigging what they're talking about. It's interesting. People are interesting, aren't they? That's why I like my job. What is one person's good day out is not another person's good day out. But I take so many different people, I just adapt and go and have a look round and see what they're doing. I've had times in my life where I've been really stressed out about things. I've had times where you're really happy and you don't, sort of don't care. Sitting in the coach, drifting, thinking things. Sometimes you sit there and think, God, my life's good. And other days you'll think, it's a mess. You're stressed about the bad things in your life. You don't stress about the good things. So I suppose the point is, if you're sitting there reflecting or thinking about your life and what you're going to do, think about the good things, the good things that are coming up. You know, enjoy the good things and don't worry about the bad things. Full of crocodiles, really. 15 species of crocodile, yeah. And that is all we have time for today. Thank you to my guest, Will Ashen. And that book, The Passengers, is out now, published by Faber, and we can't recommend it highly enough. And if you pick up a copy of Monocle's most recent issue, you can find out about a new addition to Madrid's magazine and bookshop scene, as well as catching a glimpse of a chic vinyl shop 
in Paris. And that is on newsstands now. The magazine, not the vinyl shop. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.